Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. That I will well and faithfully discharge. That I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office on which I am about to enter. The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan. This is Women Belong in the White House. Over these four episodes, we're charting Vice President Kamala Harris's path to her current role through the barrier-breaking positions she held along the way. We're exploring what it means to build a pipeline of leadership, and we're talking to folks who could one day follow in Kamala's footsteps. In this final installment of the miniseries, we've reached the present. Today we're talking about Kamala Harris's current role, vice president. What does it actually mean to be the president's right-hand lady? We're also talking about the work we have left to do and some incredible women at the forefront of those efforts. After all, we still have many glass ceilings to break, including for our nation's highest office. First things first, let's talk about the vice presidency. Any fellow fans of the TV show Veep will know that the roles and responsibilities of the position can vary significantly. I should be president or something. (laughs) Some vice presidents have been very active members of a presidential administration. Others, not so much. Turns out the vice presidency has evolved significantly over the course of U.S. history. Here's Wendy Schiller, professor and head of the political science department at Brown University. The vice president serves as the constitutional president of the United States Senate. Essentially, it was a stand-in. You know, you were there, uh, particularly after the 12th Amendment and the, the revision of the 25th Amendment, to stand in in case something happened to the president. Remember, in the 1700s and 1800s and even 1900s, life expectancy wasn't always as, as good as it is now. And that's what your job was. Starting after the income tax and after the progressive movement, the direct election of senators, the right to vote for women, um, in the 1920s and 30s, particularly in the 30s, the job of Congress got much, much bigger. The amount of legislation that was uh, introduced and enacted and the scope of federal government got bigger. So the vice president ended up sitting in the chair of the Senate. So all of the 20s, the 1930s, the 1940s, the vice president sat in the chair most of the time and presided over Senate votes and used working with the parliamentarian made rulings, what we call rulings from the chair. All in all, the role in VP has not always been beloved. Multiple amendments were proposed to abolish the position. Former vice presidents used some very colorful language to describe their work. John Adams, the country's very first VP, wrote in a letter to his wife, My country has in its wisdom contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man or his imagination contrived. One of FDR's vice presidents, John Nance Garner, said, The vice presidency isn't worth a pitcher of warm spit. 
Daniel Webster twice refused the position. He said, I do not propose to be buried until I am really dead and in my coffin. That changed when Richard Nixon was elected vice president with Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952. So in 1953, Nixon takes over and he has no interest. He was a member of the House of Representatives, Richard Nixon, and he had no interest in sitting in the chair. He didn't want to be in the Senate. He thought that's he wanted to be president of the United States. He didn't see that as his ticket. And Dwight D. Eisenhower, who'd been a, a war hero, um, he was the commanding officer of the European Theater of Operations in World War II, and then the general supreme commander of the Allied forces, he wanted nothing to do with foreign policy. He gave foreign policy, essentially, and a lot of the travel and a lot of the meetings, a lot of strategy to Richard Nixon. So that was the beginning of what we see uh, when we see an entrepreneurial vice president and the end, frankly, of having the vice president consistently preside over the United States Senate as the president of the Senate. Post-World War II, the vice presidency gained significant power. Still, the degree to which presidents have relied upon vice presidents continues to vary. The vice president's job can be crafted by the vice president and depending on the president's prerogatives and what the president wants. So we know that John F. Kennedy had a difficult relationship with Lyndon Johnson, but when he needed Southern votes, he sent his Southern vice president to the halls of Congress to, to get the votes. We know that Richard Nixon didn't really have much use for his vice president's but we also know that George W. Bush relied quite heavily on Dick Cheney and gave Dick Cheney a lot of responsibility, particularly in conducting and overseeing the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we also know that Barack Obama gave Joe Biden a lot of work to do, particularly on foreign policy, again, handling the Middle East primarily, and essentially put Joe Biden quite in charge of that. And the, the origins of this are that in um, the 1970s, late 1970s, Walter Mondale was Jimmy Carter's vice president. They're both Democrats. And he wrote up a memo, actually, outlining what he thought the vice president could and should be doing and a set of responsibilities, uh, reforming government, reforming bureaucracy, being a liaison to Capitol Hill, standing in for the president internationally. And these were things that were never written down, actually. So basically, he had free reign. And that memo, that sort of you know guideline to what it is the vice president does, stuck. Even though George Herbert Walker Bush and Ron Reagan took over from the Republican Party, they kept a lot of that. And in general, presidents tend to look to vice presidents, particularly experienced ones, to fill the gaps in what the president is good at and what the president is bad at or the president is not interested in. And uh, an entrepreneurial vice president can carve out a pretty big swath of the issue areas to deal with under that kind of scenario. So unlike the other positions we've talked about this season, the roles and responsibilities of a vice president are not set in stone. Kamala Harris's level of involvement in the Biden administration is something to keep an eye on. Thus far, it seems like she's going to be on the more involved end of the spectrum. Here's Ashanti Golar, president of Emerge and the host of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast. The biggest thing that I was paying attention to is how is she really being involved in the decisions? And that was something that we would see through the transition. And we see that she is working very closely with Biden. And that is important because it is showing us that they do have a real partnership. That she is someone who is going to be at the table, helping inform the decision. She's going to be one of the first people to know when the decisions are made. And that's going to make her effective. Why does it matter? 
What does it mean that we have a woman vice president? In part, it helps to change the question I asked at the very beginning of this series. If you close your eyes and imagine someone presidential, who do you see? Here's Kelly Dittmar, an associate professor of political science at Rutgers University and director of research and scholar at the Center for American Women and Politics. When we think of the presidency, it is really the most masculine office in the United States. And so by simply electing a woman at this level for the first time, we are breaking a glass ceiling. But what that means is that we're disrupting the image and expectations of what it means, what it looks like to be presidential. So in a very symbolic way, it matters because it pushes us to think differently about presidential leadership. In a more substantive way, it ensures that we have a woman, in this case, a woman, a black woman, a South Asian woman, uh, a child of immigrants um, who will be sitting at the most important decision making tables when it comes to this next administration. And so it also matters for the perspective and lived experience she brings, which includes living her life as a woman. And we know that that brings with it distinct perspective again and experiences that have been lacking in presidential office holding, particularly at this top level. I mean, there are moments where the president and the vice president are in the room and the decisions are going to be made in, you know, split seconds. And sometimes we don't even know the many ways in which it will matter to have certain voices and perspectives there. But you can point to many historical examples of where and when we would have really liked to have a woman in the room in making some of these decisions. For Colorado State Representative Leslie Harrod, Kamala Harris has been a mentor. Leslie served as co-chair of Kamala's campaign in Colorado. Well, it was good to be a Black woman speaking for another Black woman, you know? I mean, just just knowing that her roots are, are very similar to mine and then learning even more about her Indian culture really was inspiring, you know, and energizing, to be honest with you, to see her going from heels to Chucks and Timberlands and, and really to, like, take this campaign head on and strong. It was so, so inspiring and encouraging, but also like to see that we could do that and to see the young women, especially young girls, looking at her and seeing their little thought bubble, you know, saying like, wow, I could be the president, you know, I could run for president. I could be Kamala Harris. I mean, that is something that will will bring tears to your eyes. and And it brought so much joy to my heart to be able to do that work. But watching her persevere and staying in just at the right time and seeing when she got out and and, and advocating for her to be vice president. I mean, I learned so much in just how she moves in these spaces, you know, um, and how effective she is at doing what she does. And so it, it was it was um, it was amazing. And just to, again, to see it being done in a black way, you know, in a way of a woman of color. And that's so hard to describe, but everything from her colors to the font style she used to who she reached out to and how was different. It felt like home to me. And so I am so excited to see her being sworn in as our vice president and to watch her lead as our country gets put back together. Biden's decision to nominate Kamala Harris and their ticket's victory 
helped to change Leslie's perspective on what's possible for people who look like her. I mean, I feel like for me, I always thought, well, you know, I can't win statewide. Like I'm a black woman. I've got to be, you know, representing a district or, or a specific population. And, that, and that's just not true. But still in Colorado, we have not seen a female governor. Um, we have not seen a female mayor. These executive offices are ones that women are not supported for, not only in the vote, but really before we get there. So fundraising, getting the Democratic nomination and things like that. And that's something that really needs to change. People don't see women leading. And quite frankly, I think we would be in a much better position if we had more female executives running this country, running our states and running our cities. So we still have uh, a lot of work to do. But I think watching her lead will change that. And watching her and folks like Stacey Abrams not only leading, but also lifting up other women of color into these positions, encouraging them, supporting them, and mentoring them through these different, very difficult processes will ensure that we get there. Our work is far from over. As we've discussed at length on this show generally and this season specifically, women still face significant hurdles when it comes to running for office. Kamala Harris is the first woman to be elected vice president of the United States. We should absolutely celebrate that achievement. It's also important to look back at the women previously on the ticket who didn't break the glass ceiling. Here's Professor Wendy Schiller again. It's a striking uh, advancement, I think, for women to have elected a woman to the office of vice president. Uh, we've had two female nominees for vice president, Geraldine Ferraro in 1984 and Sarah Palin in 2008. Neither one of those tickets was elected, but each of those women were attacked for different reasons. Uh, Geraldine Ferraro was attacked mostly, she was a congresswoman from New York State, and she was attacked for her husband's um, tax filings. He apparently had some issues with his uh, IRS, and that reflected on her in a very significant way, uh, I think uh, more significantly than had she been a man. And then when Sarah Palin ran, she was governor of Alaska, duly elected governor of Alaska, and didn't have as much international relations experience as people might want or expect from a vice president. And for that reason, she was treated pretty badly from the get-go by the media. And there was an inordinate amount of attention to her looks. Geraldine Ferrer was sort of a more traditional female politician uh, in the 80s, meaning she was older. There was a time when women did not enter politics until they, they had married and had children, and those children were grown. So this was a, a shock to the system, I think, in the political realm, to have a woman who was both beautiful and also governor and also Republican. Uh, and so she didn't hold traditional uh, viewpoints on feminist issues, such as choice, for example. So, uh, But nonetheless, she was attacked pretty viciously for all those things. As with each step in Kamala Harris's career, her past experiences helped shape her ability to successfully campaign and win the election as vice president. Senators are often tapped for the role, particularly to help shore up a presidential candidate's chances of victory in different geographical areas of the country. And in addition to her previous work in elected office, Kamala's experience on the campaign trail helped secure her spot on the ticket. So timing is just, it's important for every politician, but it's especially important for women. And that's where Kamala Harris's campaign for president 
And she was facing formidable women in the Democratic Party when she decided to run for president. And she didn't do well. She didn't do well because, not because she's a woman and not because she's African-American and South Asian. It's because she didn't run a good campaign. And, you know, she, with the smart thing that Kamala Harris did, which is why she was on the ticket, is she stuck around. She withdrew from the presidential contest, but she didn't withdraw from presidential politics. She didn't withdraw from the presidential system, the campaign. She started to go out and give speeches for various candidates, and she shored up her relationship with donors. She went back to the Senate and made very striking, stirring speeches. There's no reason for this. There's no reason for this. Senator Paul's amendment would place a greater burden on victims of lynching than is currently required under federal hate crimes laws. There is no reason for this. There is no reason other than cruel and deliberate obstruction on a day of mourning. And she basically honed her campaign skills. Even though she was in support of the party more generally, she kept herself in the game. And so when it came time to pick a woman, as Joe Biden said on the debate stage, he would pick a woman as a vice president. Uh, I think responding to Hillary Clinton's uh, candidacy in 2016 and the Me Too movement, among other things, I think there was also some additional pressure to pick a woman of color, given the Black Lives Matter movement. So when you think about that, she put herself in a position to prove that she was tested. She had run twice for statewide office and been successful in California. And she had recovered from withdrawing from the presidential campaign very well. And in that sense, she was a new kind of candidate for vice president as a woman. It was important that she was a woman, uh, but it was, it was equally important that she was African-American. It was equally important that her parents were immigrant parents. It's too simplistic to say she checked a lot of boxes. It's more that she brought the dimensionality to the ticket all in one package that Biden wanted and needed. I spoke earlier to the evolution of the role of vice president, from president of the Senate to far beyond that chamber. But one of the most significant roles Vice President Harris will play over the next four years is in Congress. With the Senate split down the middle between Democrats and Republicans, Kamala will serve as the tie-breaking vote in the upper chamber. That means she probably will not be making lots of overseas trips, at least not while the Senate is in session. The administration won't want her to miss any important votes. The image of her presiding over the Senate may help Vice President Harris break that highest glass ceiling next time around. But what we'll see going forward on the VP, just to bring this full circle, is now that the Senate is 50-50, there is no clear majority, the vice president's role in the Senate is to break a tie. The vice president can only vote to break a tie. They can't vote in any other circumstance. If we think she wants to run for president again, or she wants to enhance the Biden-Harris ticket, that's a lot of free face time. So as you know, you know, when cable news covers important votes or when C-SPAN 2, if you're a Senate junkie, is that she will be seen in the chair looking like a president, looking like somebody who's presiding over a chamber, looking like somebody who can run the country. And she'll have far more exposure in that, that visual than she would ordinarily. Can we do it? Will the progress continue? We'll talk about the continuing challenges for women running for executive office after the break. Women Belong in the White House is brought to you by Emerge. 
I asked Colorado State Representative Leslie Harrod how Emerge affected her political trajectory. Well, those who are listening can't see, but I'm wearing my Emerge shirt, Leaders Matter, because it really does. I'm an Emerge graduate. I also was a part of the advisory committee to even bringing Emerge out to Colorado before I was elected. And the sisterhood and bonds that it builds are quite frankly unbreakable. And the knowledge that we gain from going through Emerge is something that is incomparable. But also watching our president, Shanti, really lead right now, too, has been also inspiring. You know, we met because she reached out to me because I tweeted about something and she was like, you know, we're watching you and here's my thinking, here's my advice and we stand with you. And that gave me so much power to keep pushing and helped me to, you know, understand some things that maybe I didn't know about. So to know that there is a group of women who are watching and ready to support and fight for other women in these offices, it's powerful and it adds a sense of responsibility that is welcomed and supported. And so uh, Emerge is just a group that I'm so proud to be a part of and quite frankly, don't think that I would be as effective of a legislator without them. Emerge is helping women around the country run for office and win. You could be next. Find out more about how you can learn to run for office at EmergeAmerica.org. That's E-M-E-R-G-E America.org. Yes, we are celebrating progress. Kamala Harris has accomplished what no other woman has done before. But that doesn't erase the fact that there are many barriers left to break. Here's California's Lieutenant Governor, Eleni Kunalakis. And when she was announced, I will tell you, I did start to sob uncontrollably with joy. It is incredible. It, it is shattering the highest, hardest glass ceiling so far, so far. But it is also a little bit anticlimactic because we almost had the first woman president. We should have had the first woman president. A record number of women ran in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I approve this message. I'm Kirsten Gillibrand, and I approve this message. I'm Elizabeth Warren, and I approve this message. I'm Marianne Williamson, and I approve this message. I'm Tulsi Gabbard, and I'm running for president. I'm asking you for your support. Despite their numbers, these women were still forced to face the never-ending question of electability. That required running a campaign of belief on top of a campaign for the role of president. Kelly Dittmar spoke to that point. You know, I, I look at 2020's presidential primary as both a point of progress and a reminder of how much farther we need to go in disrupting expectations about presidential leadership. Because what we saw was we had, of course, the highest number of women and and the greatest diversity of women running for a presidential nomination. And while that was celebrated, they still faced different challenges when it came to perceptions of electability in particular. And I've written a bit about this after speaking to campaign staffer for Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial campaign in 2018. And she talked about the fact that the campaign, that campaign, had to run two campaigns at once 
they had to run a campaign to prove that Stacey Abrams was the best candidate to be governor of Georgia. And then they had to run what she called a concurrent campaign of belief, which was to prove to voters that Stacey Abrams could win, that people would actually vote for her despite her gender and her race. And I think what we saw in the presidential primary was that same challenge to the women candidates and arguably to some of the men of color as well to run dual campaigns. And so you saw them take time on the debate stage in campaign advertisements, in their stump speeches, in almost every interview they did with the media to make the case that they could actually win, that voters would support them. And what ended up happening is this sort of cyclical effect. If you keep talking about electability, voters then have concern about your electability. And so we've got to figure out a better way to navigate that conversation in future elections. As Kelly said, this challenge for women and for people of color, regardless of gender, affects lots of political races, particularly for executive roles. Here's Amanda Hunter, executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. One reason that we started doing this work over 20 years ago is that my boss, Barbara Lee, realized that women face additional barriers when they seek executive office. And back then, she was really looking at governors to try to build this pipeline to the presidency. But we've seen in our research that it's one thing for voters to support a woman to be part of a deliberative body, like a decision maker. But if she's going to be the decision maker, voters have to be that much more convinced that she's up to the job. And voters assume men are qualified and women have to prove that they're qualified over and over. Before becoming a senator, Heidi Heitkamp ran for governor of North Dakota. She had already served as the state's tax commissioner and attorney general. Her race for governor was unsuccessful. I asked her how the challenges for women running for executive office compare to those running for a legislative body. It's easier to become the vice president than it is for a woman to become president. The pushback that I got was not running in those jobs. It was running for governor. You know, when you're trying to be the chief executive officer, you would get comments like, you don't look like a governor. And part, you know, I've got big red hair and maybe sometimes too big of a personality. But what they really meant is you don't look like a first family. You don't look like the traditional. And that's why what Kamala has been able to do, assuming this role, is absolutely critical because people now are going to see that vice president and the family of the vice president that looks different than what they may think. In fact, ironically, when I was running, the first lady at the time did an ad saying that my family wasn't best equipped to represent North Dakota. And I think the, the clear message was she's not traditional. Well, the other thing is I was a young mom. My daughter was um, 14 and my son was 10. I, I tell this story quite a bit because I got this. It would be, how old are your kids? And you would say, oh, 10 and 14 and blah, blah, blah. Or they would say, how old are your kids? Meaning, how can you abandon them? You, you, you don't have time to be a good mother. And I would say they're the same age as John Hovens, who was my opponent at the time. And, and they would look at me like, what's that got to do with it? And then they would realize it's got a lot to do with it. You aren't going to ask John Hoven how old his kids were. You aren't going to ask him how he could possibly be a father and governor at the same time. Um, now, that was 20 years ago. 
but we haven't really grown the ranks of women governors appreciably. And I think as we kind of move forward, I think uh, that is a role that um, CEOs of corporations, women serving on corporate boards, women serving in those jobs where we know we're still a very, very uh, distinct minority, even though we're over half of the population, we have to address those kinds of leadership roles, not just the Senate and the House. People seem more willing because they think, oh, well, she's just one of 100 or she's just one of 435. She can't really mess things up all that bad. So I think taking that chief executive leadership role is still very difficult for women. The challenges are even more difficult for women of color. Here's Ashanti Golar again. When we think about Vice President Harris and just frankly so many women of color in politics, they will tell you they're used to it. This is unfortunately something that you have to deal with. The racism, the sexism, the misogyny. It's never going to go away for women candidates, but they will tell you that it does weigh on them. You know, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, you know, she talked about all the hate mail that she gets and arranging for private security. Those are things that you shouldn't have to deal with just because you want to make your country better. So while they deal with it, while they carry it, while they carry it well, it doesn't mean that it doesn't impact you because we know that especially as black, brown, indigenous people in this country, racism impacts you. And no matter what position you have, it's still going to be there, you know, regardless. Despite these hurdles, women are still stepping up to run in record numbers. No black woman has served as governor of any state in the United States. But next year, that may change. Jennifer Carol Foy, former delegate in House of Delegates in the Virginia General Assembly, and I'm a candidate running for governor. Jennifer has long been a trailblazer. She was part of one of the first classes to include women at the Virginia Military Institute. She was inspired to attend, in part, by the words of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I was in my high school JRTC class when we were watching the Virginia Military Institute Supreme Court decision. I remember hearing the guys in the class say things like, well, women have a place and we need to stay in it, that we aren't deserving to go to a military institute, that we're born inferior, our brains are smaller. And um, I remember, you know, hearing that, but then also hearing the words of, in the voice of former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she said that women can do all things if given the opportunity. And I agreed. And I turned around and I looked at those guys and I said, well, I'm going to go to VMI because I'm just as smart and powerful and capable as any man in this class. And of course, they all jumped up and booed and protested. And my best friend at the time, he was going to go to West Point. And he walked up to me and he said, you know what, Jen, I was going to go to West Point. But now I'm going to go with you when you go to VMI, because I want to be there to watch you when you fail. So I looked at him and said, challenge accepted. So he went to VMI, so did I, and another male in our class. And when they got their head shaved bald, so did I. When they put on a man's uniform, they gave me a man's uniform. And for years, I marched, sweat, and bled beside over a thousand male cadets. And they all knew my name. 
but out of the other two men who went with me to VMI, I am the only one of us to walk across that Virginia Military Institute stage. So blazing trails and breaking down barriers is nothing new to me. It's something that I know and the sacrifices that have to be made to make the journey and the travel a lot easier for the millions of girls that's gonna come behind us. So if we're really going to attack and address sex discrimination and pay inequity and pregnancy discrimination, we have to do it head on. And we have to be in areas where we weren't welcome. Uh, we have to kick down doors that, are, that were previously closed and locked to us. And we have to have warriors and people who are willing to make sacrifices um, in order to make it better for the rest of us. When Jennifer turned her aspirations to politics, she was used to being prematurely counted out. I asked her about the barriers women face as candidates. Oftentimes that's what happens. People judge us on appearance first and then substance later. We walk into a room automatically charged with the obligation to dismantle a lot of stereotypes. Is she competent? Is she confident? Can she lead? Does she have enough experience? All of those things are stacked against us. And even if, as a Black woman, it's even more. Is she angry? Is she aggressive? Um, does she have an attitude? You know, all of those things are just barriers we have to break down um, when we enter different rooms and having to prove ourselves and our place and belonging to be there. And so it's, it's challenging. It is definitely more difficult for a woman to run for office than a man, hands down. And then with us being the predominant caretakers in our families, we have parents to take care of. We have children to make sure that they are taken care of. Like all of those things fall on our shoulders. And of course, many of us are working moms. And so we also have bills to pay. So now you're juggling several jobs at the same time. And I say that because it's the truth. And it's important for us to speak the truth. But here are also the facts that when women lead and when women run, women win. And so countries that are managed by women leaders are managed better. We are better consensus builders, negotiators. Uh, we are better listeners. Uh, we pay you know, the utmost attention to detail. I mean, you know, like my aunt used to always say, if you want something done right, have a woman do it. As more women win and serve in positions of power, the path is made easier for those coming next. So I have to say that watching the inauguration of Kamala Harris, it moved me. It was so much joy that I felt knowing that we all stand on the shoulders of some amazing women that came before us, whether it's Fannie Lou Hamey or Shirley Chisholm, all of the women who have fought diligently. And the, I think about the blood that has been shed and the marches and the protests that's been marched in order for us to be at this pivotal moment. And so that energy and excitement, what it does, it channels into this race because people are excited about having the first Black and South Asian vice president. And they're also excited about having the first Black woman governor in the history of our country. So we are breaking down these barriers where we're we are eliminating the first, and that's what this is about. For hundreds of years, our political leaders looked the same. Our nation suffered from the lack of different perspectives in the rooms where decisions were being made. So while progress is slow, it's vital that we continue to celebrate that change is happening. Understanding that people like Jennifer Carroll Foy can run for office and win matters. Seeing Kamala Harris looking presidential, presiding over the Senate, taking on the responsibilities required of a presidential administration 
will help her and will help women running across the board. Amanda Hunter spoke to that point. It took more than 70 years for the 19th Amendment to pass. So change can be slow. And we've seen a lot of dramatic change over the past few years with the Me Too movement, with a record number of women being elected in 2018 and again this year in 2020, and just the whole conversation shift around women running for office. So I think it's important to recognize that progress. And I think a lot of it comes down to that imagination barrier that for hundreds of years, a presidential candidate was an older white man, maybe with his shirt sleeves rolled up, wearing khakis, eating a hot dog or something. But to have so many different women running in the primary and people of color this year out there campaigning in a different way ensures that there's a whole generation that aren't going to remember having women and people of color in a Democratic primary. Here's Kelly Dittmar again. If we want to see a woman president, and I think one way we will do that is by pointing to a woman vice president and saying, here's a woman who has successfully been in the number two role in the nation. Here are all the great things she did. She was next in line. She was in the room where it happened. All of these things. Now tell me she's not electable. It becomes at least a harder case to make that the woman who's been in the public eye at this level is not electable the next time around. And I would suggest that's possibly transferable beyond Kamala Harris, right? That, it, that she has the benefit of that in particular, but that her being in that role will also help to chip away some of those expectations about women holding that role, regardless of whether or not they are Kamala Harris. For Leslie Harrod, the election of Vice President Kamala Harris is a sign that these historic, dark times we've been living through may be looking up. Well, you know, it makes me want to hang my American flag out again with so much pride. It makes me so proud of this country and my neighbors um, and, and, and uh, my fellow Americans who stepped up and, and not only worked their butts off to make sure that we won, but who were willing to come together and unite behind uh, this presidency. It makes me have hope again in a time that is, quite frankly, um, has less hope, right? Um, and I will not let it be overshadowed by these insurrectionists and, and um, white supremacists who don't want to see her or Biden ascend into the Oval Office. Um, I won't let that dampen my, my, my optimism and hope for the future um, and my just pride in, in our country and of her and him. And so, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting time, but it's one where I think we can be proud to be uh, Americans. There are still glass ceilings left to break, but this year we saw a very large one shatter, affecting generations of women in politics and leadership to come. We chose to highlight Kamala Harris's story these past four weeks because her path is extraordinary and historic. Her triumph is about much more than the success of an individual. The more we elect and amplify the stories of women in positions of power, the more we as a country understand that women of all shapes, sizes, colors, and backgrounds are capable of winning and leading. The more we're exposed to the triumphs of those who look like us, the more we as individuals see that we too can accomplish those same feats. But while I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last. 
Women Belong in the White House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Liz Smith and Grace Lynch. Executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to Carmen Borca Carrillo. Talk to you next time. Before you go, I want to tell you about another show I think you might like. Immigrants are the living embodiment of the fact that politics is personal. But how do policies affect immigrants as human beings? How are identities constructed? How do these experiences affect relationships? The Immigrantly podcast, hosted by human rights activist Saida Khan, aims to answer all of these questions with guests from diverse backgrounds. The conversations can get messy, but they're never boring. Check out Immigrantly wherever you get your podcasts.